Welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and this podcast is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Thank you so much for listening, and if you like what you're hearing, feel free to go ahead and hit subscribe, leave a review, and maybe even tell a friend or two. We'd really appreciate that. On the show today, we have a great conversation with drummer Rat Scabies. Rat pioneered the British punk scene with his band The Damned, and is currently still working on projects with the Sinclairs and Professor and the Mad Men, as well as some solo stuff every now and again. We get into all sorts of fun stuff, including the early London punk scene, and even a good bit on conspiracy theories. You won't want to miss it. I had a ton of fun, and I think you will too. So here we have Mr. Rat Scabies. Is that an electric drum set behind you? Mm, I'm ashamed to say it is. <laughs> you got to be quiet for the neighbors, right? Well, it's not that, actually. It was more because um, of lockdown. Oh, really? And stuff. So, it, you know, and moving a, a full drum kit around and all of that sort of thing. And, yes, the neighbors do come into it. Because when I play up here, man, it's like they can hear me for a mile. It's... You know, it's incredibly antisocial. Has it grown on you at all? Yeah, kind of. It, it's interesting because it makes you change the way you play. How you so? Have to kind of, well, because of the response and because everything's much smaller. You don't get you the know, same got, bounce off the skins? No, no. And, yeah. and you can sort of – it's quite an old one, so the response on it isn't – as good as the new ones, you know, but I'm, uh, I kind of like having it cause I, I'm, I, I use logic. So they've got these kind of drum kits in there now that really sound good, you know, yeah. so I can, so I can just sort of put ideas down and it's, it's real good for writing and it's the kids love it. It's a toy, you know, so. Well, it's just nice to be able to have one of those, throw on some headphones like what I'm wearing and just really go at it and know that you're not really going to be much of a bother besides some tippity taps that some people will hear. Yeah. Yeah, it's just real, but it's difficult to set up because I can't get the snare in the right place. Because <laughs> when you look at the magazine, they all put the snare drum really neatly to the left of you. Yep. I'm like, what do you, no, no. It's, I want it there where they always go, but of course it won't let me. Um, so when I started doing, when I got the, to learn the opportunity that I was going to be able to talk with you, which thanks for coming on the show and being with us. This is really exciting for me. Um, but I was really pleased to discover that you are still out and gigging, obviously pre lockdown, um, with the band professor and the Mad Men. I'm not sure if you've been playing out with anybody else, but as recently as roughly about like a year and a half ago and, is that something you just think you're going to always try and do till they drag you off stage? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't do that much live work, though, if I'm honest. Yeah. I, you know, we, we only did one show with the professional madman at the 100 Club, which was – and I said, you know, you're coming all the way over here. Why don't we do 10 shows, you know? <laughs> nope, we only want to do one. <laughs> so, okay, well, we'll do that one then. So we where where was sure. that? Was that in London? 
the hundred club, yeah. Okay. Which is, you know, and it was it was good fun to do because you kind of have to, you know, stay on your toes. Yeah. When it's, and they're recording it and filming it, and so you're like, well, you know, we're not going to get to choose out of three gigs. We, it's this is it or nothing, you know. So you have to kind of it sharpens up the way you think. <laughs> I think so. It helps you focus during the actual performance. Hmm. And it makes you curse the fact that you can't quite hear <laughs> the vocals like you needed to in rehearsals. And it's true. <clears throat> so one of the stuff. one of the tunes you guys have is um, "Space Walrus," and um, mm. is that kind of a nod to the Beatles, both musically and in the name? Am I onto something here? Or am I way off? Maybe I, I think I think I describe Professor Madman as um, kind of like a Californian oasis, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> you know, California they, oasis. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it, it, you know, it, it's a bit unfair because the Beatles are such a huge influence on so many. Well, yeah, people that you know, it's very easy to be nasty about. Well, not nasty, but make fun, poke fun at it. But um, yeah, they, they. I think they they kind of you know their their influences are the best bits. Yeah, well, I mean they, they just do, they yeah. got really diverse to be able to have a song like "I Am the Walrus" that kind of just got loud and nasty. That kind of paved the way for some of this louder, crazy punk music that came up a few years down the road. Well, it said it was okay to do that. Yeah, and it was okay to be suddenly different. I mean, if the Beatles taught us anything, you know, it was that transition between we've all got the same haircut and suit to here we are dropping acid and writing songs that are about sex and violence. You know, it's kind of, you know, Maxwell Silver Hammer yeah. is an out-and-out tale of a psychotic murderer. I mean, <laughs> it, it really is, and I, I, I think it... it it's quite because the Beatles must have been sitting there saying we could sing about anything, yeah, and people will love it. And you listen to the lyrics on that song, and it's like, boy, yeah, it's, it's about written from the killer's perspective. And yeah, I, think, I guess I haven't really listened to that, and just like I think a good thing to do a lot of times is to go and read the lyrics because then you get kind of a better understanding of the story that's being told. Because it's hard yeah. to even listen to them a lot of times. Well, I very rarely do. I mean, it's it's the last thing you take notice of. Isn't it the weirdest thing? They're always yeah. called a song, but nobody ever really bothers with what's being said. It's so true. It's kind of... <coughs> it gets a, it's good for you as a drummer, you know? People react to the groove almost immediately. Yeah, I mean, I, I do work a lot with vocals though I, I think you know if if they're singing then i shouldn't really be doing lots of drums you know yeah. you kind of got to make space for what's going on yeah agreed Even if you're not really listening. yeah you know that's kind of 
And I, I think that was one of the good things about working with Dave Vanian a lot. Because he he was had a great sort of sense of dynamic as a singer. Yeah. You know, he kind of knew when the band was being noisy and he'd kind of make sure there'd be a, somewhere for him to do the right thing. You know, kind of because the band always used to go a bit free form on some of the shows, you know. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, and absolutely. So he was always pretty good at doing that. I don't even know why I bothered to mention it. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> yeah. It just, it kind of you have to have that. You know, I, I was watching a documentary with Roger Daltrey, and he was talking about Keith Moon, and um, he was playing back the tapes, you know, just the vocals and the drums, and he said Moon never worked with the guitar or the bass. He always worked with the vocals, and then when you hear just the two together and you listen, actually, he is. It's... It's all of the big moments are around the vocals. Huh, I'd love to hear that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's probably on YouTube somewhere, but if you listen to any of their records, actually, it's really quite obvious. It's, you know, it's, unless you know, you don't really take it on board, but I think that's a, a pretty much a good rule, you know. And also the singer is, you know, he's the front man. He's the one that the majority of the audience is there to watch and to yeah. see. And they don't really like it if you go in the <laughs> in the bit where you know, which is their favourite lyric of the song or whatever, you know. So you have to kind of, I think you always have to be aware that they are the front man, yeah. <laughs> and that a lot of people are there because of them. And actually, you're just the drummer bloke up the back, you know. That's kind of. <laughs> you know, I understand that because I played drums in a couple of bands, not to much of uh, not to any sort of high quality, but I I always felt more comfortable being back there than if they were like, "Why don't you sing a song? Why don't you take a drum solo?" And be like, "Nah, I'm good. I don't want that spotlight." <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's well, I didn't mind it. You know, I didn't mind doing the old solo, which mostly was forced on me for the band's need to drink more beer. <laughs> do a solo, and then they'd all disappear off the stage. Like, oh, that's cool, they're watching. And then you'd actually have to look over, and they're not. They're all... <laughs> <laughs> that, that sets <laughs> the clock for you, too. Like, how fast could they yeah. slam a beer, and then that's how long your solo's got to yeah. be? Yeah. Okay, guys, I was... I'm cutting this one down to thirty seconds. <laughs> one of the projects that you're that you've been working on that I have just been listening to a ton of and loving is uh, the Sinclairs, which you've been doing with Billy Shinbone. And I got to tell you, yeah. I've just always loved surf music. I did a band called the Barnacle Movement that was just a two-piece, <laughs> like what you guys were doing, just all pretty much old Ventures, Dick Dale, stuff like that. And I'm kind of wondering, is that what you guys are coming from? And has surf drumming influenced you throughout your career? Um, not so much surf drumming, but I, I was always a big Sandy Nelson fan.
And I, I don't know if he counts as a surf drummer. He does to me <laughs> over here in England. But, um, yeah, and I think uh, not so much the earlier stuff, but the Beach Boys always had really good drums. Agreed. On their records, you yeah. know. And, um, but surf in England didn't really go. It was a, a, a mythical invention, you know. It was a place and people that we didn't know anything about, really. Warm you know, weather and, then, and sunshine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Big cars, surfboard. What's that? <laughs> what was that? You lay, you lay on it and float. <laughs> so I, I, you know, my main introduction to anything kind of surfy really was the occasional records that made it into the charts. But also, you know, again, Keith Moon. You know, when it's like, oh, I love surf and the Beach Boys, and you're kind of, oh, okay, well. Why? What's that got going on that you should check out? You know, and, yeah. But it's it's quite interesting because I think that twangy guitar thing has sort of um, it's become its own identity, if yeah. you like. There's very very few. Well, I, I can't think of any others at the moment. You can't really say there's a guitar sound apart from a surf guitar. True. Nobody, nobody really goes. Oh, yeah, it's a great Angus Young sound because it's actually it's just another loud Gibson. You know, yeah. it's you know you can't pinpoint it. You can maybe say, oh, well, that's a big mouth fuzz pedal there. You know, but it's not like. But if you say surf, everybody immediately knows what you're talking about. A hundred percent. I think it's such an iconic. It's such an iconic sound anyway, and the genre of it. And Billy adores it, and he's just real good at that whole kind of. You know, big speed tremolo thing. You know, he really so, is. It's something that's really unique to surf guitar. Is someone who can, it 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 doesn't. Oftentimes, it sounds like two guitarists doing things because you've got them doing stuff on the low end, and then they bounce right up, and then they're doing stuff on the higher yeah. up on the neck. I'm curious, from a drumming standpoint, um, what technical differences do you make drumming with just a guitarist versus with a full band? Um. Well, it, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Um, in a way, because you're just, there's only one person to communicate with. True. So we're both in the same room and we're both on the same kind of page. And uh, I think the real value of it comes in that, you know, kind of being able to read me is quite important and knowing when I'm going to do something that's maybe a half a bar longer than it should be or, you know, it's like Billy's got, he's very good at understanding where I'm going to go next. Yeah. <laughs> and so when there's two of you in the room doing that, that's fine. Whereas when you start to have a whole band, it usually means that you end up overdubbing the bass and the keyboards, right? It's, True. You know, so we've, we've got a pretty good empathy on, on that sort of level. So that, that makes it a lot easier. But in, in terms of my own sort of approach to it, it's always, you know, I hear the riff and it's kind of, well, what's the first thing that I think of that would sound right on that? Yeah. What's the approach? It's the feel, I guess, more than anything. And then you can go in and you do a take and you can go back and listen to it and realise it's completely the wrong thing. <laughs> it's something much, much different, you know, is, is how it does work sometimes. It's, but I think I only really 
you know, I kind of do sort of louder and quieter, but generally speaking, I sort of don't really change much of what I do for whatever it is. Just I just do it at different speeds and different volumes, I suppose. When did you start playing drums? I was about eight. At about eight? When I got my first kind of kit, yeah. Okay. Um, it was uh, just a, a love affair, really, with that that sound. Yeah. And that noise. That was, yeah. <laughs> it was, as, soon, you know, as soon as I heard the drums, I knew, knew. And it was a ridiculous thing for an eight-year-old to decide. <laughs> but... How so? You know, it, well, <laughs> it's not exactly a cup. What are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a drummer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and if that doesn't work out, and I was always, you know, no, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And I, I thought really maybe if I was lucky, I'd end up playing in like an orchestra or in a, or in a pit in a theatre or something. You know, that's kind of what I thought I'd end up being oh you did at least have that idea that was like the rock and roll aspiration but there was always like that was kind of your safety net well yeah i didn't you know i was never going to be an accountant or anything else (laughs) so i i you know and i just um i kept chasing kind of auditions and things and where i lived i gradually got nearer to london because that was where the music was you know yeah and then i kind of because I got kicked out of a couple of bands because I only like playing fast songs and I was sort of <laughs> doing my thing I suppose and then when I met Brian James that was like ah there was something about that meeting that was weird this is what I've been waiting for you know someone on the same frequency Yeah, very much. Uh, he only liked loud and fast, and we, so we were kind of on the same page with what we wanted to be doing, the energy we wanted to put into what we were doing, as much as the notes. And because of the way Brian plays guitar and the way he wrote his songs, it, it was really quite easy for me to um, just to lock in with that and kind of know what was necessary for me to do, you know, the, the things that I thought would work on a tune and, and then it kind of did. And we both used to kind of push each other a lot while we were playing. There was always a kind of element of, oh yeah, really? you're going to do that, then I'm going to do this. And it was, <laughs> and that was, that was part of the thing that made it work, I guess. Where do you think well, the sound kind of came from? Because there wasn't really much in that realm of early punk until you guys kind of hit the scene in the mid seventies. So I'm, that's what I'm curious is there, were you just listening to records and listening to all these bands all over the UK and coming in from the States and just being like, I'm just not hearing the music that I think should be made right now. 
yeah, there was that. I mean, we, we had the MC5, the Stooges and the Dogs and, and that mm-hmm. thing. And we had a few English equivalents like the Pink Fairies and, a, and you know, a couple of other bands. And it was there, you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't ours, you know. It was the attitude we wanted, but it wasn't. It didn't belong to us. So for me, anyway, I always thought they were big brothers. You know, they were yeah. kind of the next generation up. Um, so I kind of want to jump into a little bit about. So I just was. I'm up in um, Inverness right now, and um, well, in Scotland, yeah, yeah, uh, Scotland. Wow. And um, I'm going to be coming down to Brighton in a like two and a half weeks. Where I'm going to be spending a couple of months. And um, I was just in London for a little over a week for the first time. Went and had a beer in a few different places. But on the last day that I was there, one of my girlfriend's friends was like, "Hey, we should go over to Camden, and you should check that out." And it kind of, it, you know, I was there. It was like I don't know. It just had this like it lost its authenticity feel. It was just kind of. Uh, making a joke of itself almost. And I'm just kind of curious if you can tell us about that area and just the general punk scene in the 70s in London. Well, most most of the punk scene was uh, really was only able to thrive in places where not many other people would go. That makes sense. And it was cheap, you yeah. know, so it was squats. It was kind of run down. It was, you know, poor neighbourhoods, I guess. And but at the same time, London, as you know, is, is very small, and so it, it doesn't take too long to get from the sort of wrong end of Portobello to the rich end of Portobello. True, very true. <laughs> so you always kind of had this thing of that you you could drink where the money was, <laughs> you couldn't afford <laughs> to live there. But it was like in Camden was one of those places. It was pretty run down, you know, and there was Dingwalls was what really, which was a club there that a lot of people used to go to because it used to be open until 2am, so it was one of the few late night drinking places. But they used to have a lot of great bands on as well. So, and it was, you know, that used to kind of get a lot of people there. Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this. Generally speaking, you know, there, there were pubs that were, you know, in areas that not many people really wanted to go to. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, it was like, oh, well, we've got a band, can we play in your pub? And, and you know, 150 people would turn up and get drunk and there'd be a big fight. But it was... <laughs> That was the early days. That was the staple gig. Well, kind of, yeah. Well, maybe not 150, maybe more like 50. But <laughs> you know, uh, but you got to remember the pub rock thing was thriving quite well then. So there was a few like the Hope and Anchor and places where you could go and see a band, and the you know a lot of pub landlords were quite aware and astute that when we arrived, you know, this this was going to be the next kind of thing that would draw in the customers as opposed to they they were aware there was the next wave i think most stupid people i think the only people that didn't really think it was going to be much were the bands themselves i mean you know you always wanted to make it as a band and to play for a living but the thought of it actually happening you know was 
you know, that, that was a different <laughs> dream. Yeah. No, I think that that's something, I mean, it, it was kind of a, a shot up really quickly for you guys. Right. I mean, it was a single, an album and then a U.S. tour. And did that all just happen in the span of a few months? Yeah, pretty much. Well, I, I just found some old posters and the first one, was uh, the headline band was the Flaming Groovies. The second on the bill was uh, the Trogs, I think, or the Pirates. <laughs> and then it was the damned opening. And then three months later, and it was three months later, the damned were headlining with Motorhead, second on the bill, and the adverts opening. Really? So it, it went literally in three months, we went from being the opening act to the headline act and the bands that had been the headline acts had been replaced by Motorhead, who at the time were seen as a kind of almost like a joke metal band. You know, yeah. they were kind of, nobody really took it seriously or thought they were a great band. They were there and they played, but they, you know, they only had a, a sort of, small pocket of followers so it, you know and so it just changed sort of yeah really in the space of months that's so interesting to me to think of I, that when i think of motorhead i just think of a giant stage in the 80s <laughs> so it's hard for me to like place them in a small pub in in london <laughs> well yeah you know seeing them at like the nashville rooms or something like that was a bit you know just they they, they were loud as well <laughs> <laughs> absolutely um so i want to jump back into your your ringtone here as well as being this a lifelong musician since the age of eight um you also have a keen interest in some pretty unique things and one of them i'm just learning about for the first time which is a search for the holy grail and then some like secret oh. societies and things like that are, are you someone who just loves a good conspiracy theory um i was sort of born into it really and my parents were very alternative thinkers okay and uh, you know I, I have a lot to thank them for i think on some levels but one of the things of course that was always around was the mystery of Rand the chateau and the legend of arthur the legend of the grail parsifal yeah. uh, you know the whole kind of thing and i grew up hearing all of these stories and listening to these conversations about gold, treasure, mythical lands, you know, Atlantis, you know, and all of that kind of stuff was around all the time. And so this was dinner table talk in your family? Oh, yeah, and after dinner and before dinner. And, oh, that's great. You know, and just so it was, uh, you know, the story of Ren the Chateau in particular, I, I always just loved the tale of the priest and the wealth and the secret society. Everything about it was really good and much, much spookier back then as well, much more sinister. Yeah. You know, there were, you know, there were mysterious deaths. Brake cables did get cut on cars. Large things were placed over doors. You know, it was... It kind of it was edgy, yeah. So and I just really loved all of that that side of it and that story. And then when I started looking at it, it, it got really weird. <laughs> and I, I mean, properly kind of well, you know, if this is real, if what's happening to me is real, then it means there is something going on that we don't have a name for that I 
have no way of understanding or plugging into, but actually I'm watching it unfold in front of me and I'm watching it happen. So, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. that's, that's the kind of mindset you got to get into for it. I think for sure. Well, you have to take a leap of faith, which means you yeah. either believe in it or you don't. And I still haven't taken that leap of faith. I still am a non-believer. I still think that there are probably things that happen that trigger, say, the coincidence factor that kicks in quite big sometimes, what well, it did for me anyway. Yeah. But when that starts happening, you, you sort of in the cold light of day, you think, well, it's probably some psychosomatic connection of mine you know, that my mind's making. Yeah. But then when you get to the south, the thousandth coincidence, you know, when does it stop being coincidence? When does it stop being a psychosomatic thing and something that's because as soon as you move away from the subject, you know, the coincidences do, they stop. Yeah. And it's, um, and it's a quantifiable thing. That's the reason I always latch on to the, Coincidence thing is you can predict with absolute certainty that if you start following this topic and you start researching this with any kind of depth, then these are the kind of things that are likely to happen to you. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the kind of thing that's true, right? There is something that's manifesting your destiny. And so if if your mind is focused on those types of things, that's what you're reading throughout the day. And, and those are the, you know, whether it's podcasts or YouTube videos or whatever it is that you're putting in front of yourself, I I can see those things happening in front of you. It makes me wonder, I just watched a, um, a trailer for a documentary that's going to be coming out in, I think early October. That's, talking about UFOs and it has a lot of pretty high up people in the U S government. I I don't know if there's any global other governments involved, but talking about what we might know about it, I'm wondering if you believe in any of that. Uh, There's a documentary called Mirage men that you should take a look at. Mirage man. Yeah. Mirage men. Okay. And it's about exactly that. And it's, government agents saying why they um, created UFOs, you know, stories and carried the myth. And it's, it's very logical stuff in that if you're the American government testing a new secret weapon that you don't want the Russians to find out about and it crashes in a desert in Mexico, rather than answer a lot of awkward questions about what was it that crashed and why did the military have such an interest, it's much easier to say it's a flying saucer from outer space. We don't believe in them, and therefore we can't answer any more questions on this subject. Did you go and retrieve things? We're not going to tell you. <laughs> and there's, There is you know, some convenience in that. <laughs> in all of it. And I, you know, think that, it only takes one UFO sighting to be real. Yeah. And the whole ball game changes. Yeah. And that's the question. Is there one that's real or not? Or is it a mixture of natural phenomena, military testing, which I personally, you know, I'd say 99.9% of all sightings and denials, cover-ups, forged documents, witness intimidation, you name it, you know. They don't mind spreading, you know, 
you're a government, you've got a whole department whose job it is, is to keep that secret. Yeah. And to keep that secret by any means necessary, which is what, exactly what they do. Well, it's the idea That's that the, the mass general population doesn't have the, they don't trust that we have the mental capacity to be able to handle that kind of news, right? Well, also look at what it would do to the planet. You know, religion, you know, becomes meaningless when you can say, here's God's phone number. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it changes, you know, the way we, the way we live with, you know, money, financially, politically, socially, everything goes out of the window. It would just, to I mean, look at how much COVID has adjusted the way we view the world. Exactly. In terms of cycling, walking, birds, nature, trees, pollution, plastics. It's all come to the foreground, much more so, which is, you know, and that's a very earthly thing. Yep. You know, so if you suddenly do turn around and say, well, actually, yeah, we found, we found the Martians up there, you know, they, they've been coming down and, you know, talking with us for a while now. I am curious if that's the kind of thing that we would need as humans to come together and stop, you know, squabbling over such petty things amongst one another and just be like, well, oh, there's much greater things for us to be thinking about. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's one of the problems I think the planet's got really is that, you know, we don't take what we need. Yeah. People want more than they need for other reasons. I doubt, God knows why. You know, I mean, I don't know. I, because I'm not one of those people, I find it difficult to understand. What I don't understand is this constant need for more to take over other territories. To, yeah. You know, it's like, what's the motive behind that? Well, mineral wealth, political slavery. What You know, what? why do you need more than you have? when what we have is enough to keep us all alive anyway and keep us all going and actually probably live a much happier life for it. But it's um, kind of like there's almost a need for a rotation of, of military for some sort of political balance. That, I can see I that. That's interesting, though. So throughout the, you know, you the music world in general is a very up and down place you're successful like you said you were at the bottom of the bill three months later you're at the top of the bill with completely new bands and that's you know you've you've experienced very high highs in in your career and you've experienced lows as well i'm sure and i guess you've just like when the highs were there did you just kind of always have that same mindset of i don't need to necessarily have all this i'm fine being in the lows too yeah. Well, yeah, I think I probably did. I think I was um, probably just too much of an arrogant little shit, though, really. <laughs> I don't I'm going to do anything I want, whenever I want, you know, and, and that sort of thing. I, I think a, a lot of our success was wasted on me. You know, I don't think I necessarily... It never felt like we really got to the top of the pile, you know. I mean, we got a fair way up, but we didn't, we weren't right at the top. <laughs> no, but and you know, you so, guys did. I mean, you 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 hit some strides, and you guys definitely opened some doors for a lot of people with what you did. And someone's kind of got to go through and and be the first one through. Yeah, and I think you know the the 
<laughs> the pioneers get the arrows and the settlers get the gold. I do. Maybe it's because I'm in Scotland, but I think of the movie Braveheart and you think of the armies coming together and those those first people on those front lines, <laughs> they're paving the way yeah, for the people in the back. Well, yeah. <laughs> it'd be one of those. What are you doing in Inverness anyway? I've got a um, my girlfriend's from Southport, and her mom, uh, her mom's partner is from Inverness. So we're up here. We were in the states for a while. Um, her visa ran out, so in July we came over here because I got six months visa, and then right. we're trying to figure out what we're gonna do. We bought a van. We're gonna go and uh, tour around a little bit in the van for a couple months, and then if we can get over into the Scotland. EU early next year, we'll do it. Well, Scotland's beautiful. I've got. Friends, I used to go there quite often to um, a place called Huntley, which isn't okay. that far from you. Okay. It's not far from you. It's kind of towards Aberdeen a bit. Okay. In that direction. But it's nice. You can go and see Loch Ness. You can go and see them. We did, uh, we did on Saturday. It was a beautiful day on Saturday. We went for a nice drive, went and saw the, the Harry Potter Bridge, and then drove back up along that nice road along Loch Ness. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's a weird lake, though, isn't it? Because you can't actually, it's very difficult to get to the water. Yeah, it's very steep in a lot of places. <laughs> yeah, most of that around, you know, you can only get on those couple of places. I was quite surprised. <laughs> no, I've really enjoyed it up here. We went and did the um, NC500 all along the north coast. And um, God, it's just, I, I didn't, I don't know what I had in my head in terms of what Scotland would be like, but it's not what it is it's just so beautiful and it's so diverse mm. yeah it is i mean i did a couple of fishing trips far north <laughs> far far north yeah and you really do get you know i just remember waking up in the tent and there must have been a herd of about 200 deer drinking at the edge of the yes. lake you know and it was like whoa <laughs> This is, you know, yeah, this, this is proper outdoors. Yeah, it's, it's still pretty wild. Deer deer around, I noticed. <laughs> yeah, the only deer around here are in Richmond Park or all the butchers, you know. <laughs> you know what surprised me about London is the city foxes. There was a ton of them. Oh, yeah, we've got loads around here. You guys yeah. do as well. Huh, yeah, it's yeah. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, they're, um, where's well, easier food? Yeah, they just wait for garbage day. Yeah, they do. <laughs> when they come in here, they just tear them out. I mean, yeah, we get them in the garden and stuff, and you know. Um, anyway. I want to kind of jump back into you did a um, oh yeah, you did a cover of Dylan's "This Wheels on Fire" a few years oh, back, yeah. and I'm wondering why did you end up choosing that that cut off a deep or a, you know big pink. just sort of getting into that thing of good and bad music you know and I thought Wills and Fire was one of the good ones Okay. and it was at the time it was sort of the punk well for me the punk bubble had sort of burst and it I you know I really just sort of 
I just thought if I did something that was different and put that out there, it sort of shows another side to what you do rather than just being the mad punk drummer in the damned. It sort of, you know, I don't know, it just broadens things a bit more. And uh, at the time, I was uh, Danny Custeau, who was Tom Robinson's guitar player, was around. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about putting a band together and stuff, and my missus was she can sing, so we, we just said, well, let's have a day studio and let's do that. And so that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really great version. Do you try and balance that mix of doing it in your style and also paying homage to the original? No, it's, you know, the notes are the notes and the melody line and the chorus and stuff, those those are there, you yeah. know. If you change those, then it's not that song anymore. So yeah. that's the thing. But I couldn't have played it like the original if I'd have wanted to, yeah. you know. And so all you can do really is just give it your best shot and hope it works. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, it worked. I really like that. It was just such a unique take on that. And I just, my brain never would have taken that song there. So I, I love when that happens. That's the thing when you smoke too much pot. <laughs> Could have been the opposite for me. I might have smoked too much and gone the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah. You discover psychedelia. <laughs> so as I was watching um, this live performance, which I'm going to link to the live performance of you and the and Professor and the Madman on, on YouTube, because I want, I want to be able to let people see that but i'm also curious about these music videos for the sinclairs do you have do you like having creative input in them because you guys do some pretty unique interesting videos for the sinclairs especially and i'm curious if you like that aspect of it too well thank you yes i do very much i mean the, the sinclairs is all imagination because we, we don't have budget you know we don't have any money but we do have some quite good friends who let us like the first video halfway around your dreams we, that's in my mother's barn really is full up with thousands of filthy old books yeah. and junk and rubbish and stuff and it's been like that ever since she moved in because they've never <laughs> got around to clearing it out and so when we when we wanted to do the video but you know we okay we can do it there and so we use like builders lights rather than expensive photography lights we shoot um uh Billy shoots every, you know, what he's got on a, you know, his Huawei phone, you know, or on mobiles and the other stuff. Our friend Kim moves around with one of those old little digital cameras that films. Oh, that's great. So, I, I, yeah, we, we, you know, and um, it, it's just ideas, really. And Billy's brilliant for making, you know, like Mavis the doll and green things on 
So I'm like, yeah, we've got a great, let's put it on a bit of string and make it fly. You know? <laughs> and like, well, it won't look real. And it's like, yeah, no, I think that's okay, though. It doesn't matter. That's what it's all about, though, right? You just got to try things. It might work, it might not. And then you, you circle back and figure it out from there. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, the pop video, as, <laughs> as an old person calls it, is really basically the same thing. It's a live performance of the band. And you cut in with other things of interest to the viewer, you know. Yeah. And in our case, things of interest to the viewer are nearly always unnerving or have a sort of sense of question about them or, uh, you know, like the fortune telling deck of cards. Yeah, or playing uh, playing chess on a beat-up chessboard. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. all the messages that came, that was, you know, the coincidence, all of the messages that came up on the fortune selling deck of cards actually were the ones that came up. Oh, really? And it was kind of things like beware of sickness. And, you know, it was, <laughs> so it was it sort of at work. And then, you know, Billy's really good. He loves doing the editing and putting the thing together and, you know, and making it work. So I own a lot on that. He's, he's a real force behind the videos. We just shot another one, though. I'll change the subject quickly before I give away too much credit. <laughs> We've just done our Halloween single. Oh, nice. Which is called Halloween Flyer, which is um, going to be coming out on the 30th of October on Cleopatra Digital. But we got a, uh, we got singing on this one. So we got Paul Ronnie Angel from the Urban Voodoo Machine to do the vocals and we shot the video for that yesterday cool so hopefully it should be ready in a couple of weeks and ready to go for halloween did you guys give it a nice spooky theme uh there's a lot of shadows a lot of shadows i was wondering if there was a smoke machine <laughs> no no we didn't have the budget for that <laughs> but, we, but we did um yeah it, it looks really really good i was really pleased with it Great. I've been pleased with all the videos we do. They all look really great. I that, mean, they really do. I was, I mean, besides just having that kind of musical um, setup for them as well, the videos accompany them really well. So you guys just keep doing that, which leads me into my last question for you, because this is something that I'm very curious what your thoughts are. You've, it's very clear that you've got a, I think you've still got a lot of good energy. And I just wonder if you think staying creative and keep on tapping into that creative part of your brain throughout life can just keep a person young at heart? Yeah, I like to think so, but it ain't always there. You know, that's that's the issue I have with creativity is that mm -hmm. I, I'd quite often like to be creative, but I'll pick up the guitar and just go, there's nothing happening for me here. <laughs> you know, so it's not always, you know, it's not always kind of so easy to do, but I think, yeah, that the more creative you can be in everything that you do, yeah. even if it's where you arrange a bookshelf or tidy the garden, I think imagination is key. Brain is everything. Everything, everything in life is about headspace. It's about the way we perceive, the way we see, the way we feel. It's all in here. You know, it's if you feel kind of run down and burnt out, it's not because you actually are. It's just because your mindset isn't one that says oh, i've got the energy to do that yeah or i don't have the energy to do that it's like you know sex it's all in the head it's not you know 
you start thinking of a, I don't know, a bucket of water or a garbage can going for hours. That's true. As soon as your mind goes on to the job in hand, it's all over. <laughs> that's a really good analogy that I hadn't really thought of, but that's perfect. Um, I just want to give you a big thank you, Rat Scabies. I'm glad we finally got to connect. It took a couple tries, yeah. but we did it. Yeah. And did. Um, I enjoyed talking to you. I think I could sit here and talk about UFOs and conspiracy theories for hours. Well, in Vanessa, you've got some good places up there, haven't you, for UFOs? We've been trying to scope a couple of them. There's some, there's some folklore up here, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm trying to, there was one place where there was a lot of it going on. I'm trying to remember where it was. Oh, well, that's life. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for all the music you've given us throughout the years, and, and I, we look forward to more. Keep, comp- keep coming up with them. Well, well, I'll do my best. Thanks. Big thank you to Rat for coming on with us and giving us some of his time. I just love getting the opportunity to talk to someone and learn about what things were like back during that time in the 60s and 70s and even 80s, just because it's so detached from me. I'm just, I was so young in the 80s and just had no knowledge of it. I read about it all the time, so I just really appreciate him and, and giving us some of his history. As always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. See ya.